Well, good morning, everyone. We are finishing off uh, the end of chapter 4 in the book of James, and uh, we will pick up chapter 5 for three more lessons come the end of January. So this is the last life group Sunday officially. Amongst your life groups, you may have other Sundays planned, but this is the last official life group Sunday in the series on James before we move into the Christmas messages and season. Um, so if you want to turn there, it'll be James chapter 4, 13 to 17 to be ready for the message today. Um, I don't know. I've been sort of following a lot of cutbacks in education, and so I'm not sure whether they still have guidance offices in the schools um, or what the guidance office does. But when I was in high school, every student had to map out a plan for application to post-secondary education. And you had to apply, I think, to at least three different places. And I wasn't really sure in high school what I wanted to do. I really had no plan for my life. I knew I wasn't going to be a farmer. That's all I knew. Um, I applied to Guelph for landscape architecture. I applied to York for media arts. And I applied to some other place for something that was related to journalism, I think it was. But it also had the option of being pre-law. I remember that because I really love to argue any topic anyone brought up. <laughs> and so to me, being a lawyer sounded like a perfect career. Um, and of course, when you're a teenager and you make these applications to these various schools, where you are accepted or rejected kind of sets the course of your life. It helps determine your direction. Well, I was accepted at all three, so that didn't help me in any way. <laughs> But I liked the L.A. program because it was very diverse, and I loved the campus at Guelph. And when you took the L.A. program, you took urban planning, and you took some architecture, but you also took sculpture and illustration and philosophy and history. So it was a very Renaissance kind of education, and I thought, oh, I like how broad that education is. So five-year undergraduate degree in landscape architecture. Never practiced a single day of landscape architecture. <laughs> in my life. When I got to university, I found the internet in its infant form before the World Wide Web and all of that stuff. And when we were there with some other undergraduates and people, by the time I was in my final year, I had started an internet software and design company. And I helped run that for about 10 years. And then God showed me a new passion for the church, and I switched careers to become a pastor, which was a surprise to everybody around me. So Proverbs 16.9 is pretty much the story of my planning career. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. I pretty much had nothing to do with any of the planning that went on in my life and where I ended up. Now, that doesn't mean that God will always lead people to become pastors or missionaries, only that God ultimately establishes the outcome of your life. Whatever planning you may do or may not do, God determines your steps. And as Christians, I would encourage you to embrace that and recognize that as soon as possible. And that is very relevant to our text today because as, as James is continuing his inspection of the early church and he is looking at the church scattered around, the very young church in the mid-40s AD likely, he's been picking out sort of oddities in the church from his perspective in the sense that churches are supposed to be filled with Christians and yet in many ways, he sees people, many people in these churches, behaving exactly the same as everybody else around them. 
He sees that within the church, there are people who are not yet fully matured into the attitude of Christ that James would hope to see in them. They look just the same as the unsaved people who they live among. They show partiality to the rich we've seen. They give in to their selfish desires. They lack good works. They're quarrelsome and fighting amongst each other. They're judging each other. And now at the end of chapter 4, James' investigation of the church looks at their careers, the plans they are making for their life, how they gain prosperity, and what they do with the prosperity once they have it. And once again, James's assessment is similar. It's hard to tell the difference between the Christians and the non-Christians in the way they plan, the way they profit, and how they use their success. It's as if, to James, their most central and formative identity in Jesus has no impact at all in that particular sphere of their life. Well, what about the church today? What about us as Christians? Would the world looking at Christians and our plans and our careers and our life aspirations and the way that we use our prosperity and our success, would they look at Christians and say, wow, that is radically different than the world? Or would they, like James, look at the church and say, you guys plan and prosper and spend your prosperity exactly the same way as everybody else? Clearly, Jesus makes no difference to your career or your plans. It's important to recognize that James is not opposed to plans and profits or even prosperity, but he is concerned that how we make plans in our life and what kind of outcomes we plan for and the methods we employ and what make, what, how we make use of the proceeds should look very different than our neighbors and coworkers. And that's what he's talking about at the end of chapter 4 and actually into the next part of chapter 5, which we're not going to get to this week, uh, but the first part of chapter 5, he stays on the same topic speaking more towards unbelievers in the next paragraph. But let's pray before we read 13 to the end of 4. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for James and his inspection of the church. We understand completely that as he inspects the churches of 40 AD, he is equally by the Holy Spirit inspecting the church of 2023, and specifically the church of Lakeside. He's not only examining the hearts of the Christians of his era, but by your Holy Spirit examining our hearts. And we know that your word does not return to you void, so we pray that as your word enters our hearts, it would not return empty, but it would be transformative and change our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So James 4, 13, it's not to 5, 6. I changed that, sorry. It's just to the end of 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The first thing that we want to see here is that James's initial audience to his instruction on prosperity in the church, like I said, this paragraph, not the next paragraph, but this paragraph, is to prosperous church members. He's talking to Christians here. All through this letter, he's been writing to people he calls brothers and sisters in 1-2, 1 2 1-16, 1-19, 2-1, 2-14, 3-1, 3-10, 4-11. He's talking to the church in this letter. 
And in this paragraph, you can see that he assumes that these are people who should or would include the will of God in their plans. He says, you're the types of people who would say, you know, God willing, I will do this or that. He wouldn't say that to non-believers. He wouldn't be saying that to Christians or to pagans. He has no expectation that unbelievers would include God in their planning. So this particular part of his instruction is to prosperous believers, prosperous people in the church. They're not fabulously wealthy Christians, maybe, but they're comfortably middle class in first century terms. At this point in history, and from other biblical examples, we know that there's roughly three layers to the economy uh, in the first century. At the bottom, you had day laborers and slaves and indentured servants who basically had no discretionary income. When they got a denarii, they knew exactly where it was going. It was going to food or shelter or feeding their family or getting clothing, and that was it. And then at the upper end of the spectrum, you had the landowners, you had people who had generational wealth. They were not dependent on what they did any particular day. A lot of days they didn't do much except walk around and look at all the property that they owned, that they were renting or getting production from. Um, and then in the middle, you mainly had merchants and some professionals who, if they found a niche in the market, could do pretty well for themselves, but with no guarantees. The middle class basically was as good as the last dollar they worked, but they were comfortable. They had discretionary income. And as the early church grew initially, we know, by and large, it grew from the lower class. But as it grew, it began to encompass the middle and the upper classes. So you had people like Lydia of Thyatira, the seller of dyes in Acts 16. Or you had those that sold land and houses to support the church that we read about in Acts chapter 4. And James has already talked in this letter about the presence of people with gold rings and fine clothing who come in and not to be partial to the wealthy members of the church. It took some risk and ingenuity to be middle class. It wasn't guaranteed. Lots of things could bump you out of the middle class if you lost your business connections or if your trading ship sank. But with diligent work and a little bit of favor, you could stay prosperous in the first century. As I said, these people had discretionary income. The kind of people that we're talking about are people who can take a vacation every couple of years. You know, they can afford to pay far too much for food when they go out for lunch and spend the equivalent of a week's grocery bill, you know, on a hamburger and fries. Starting to resonate with you now here in Halliburton? But they could afford to do that a few times a month. And they had a second car, maybe a boat, maybe a snowmobile. Maybe they had two or three laptops laying around. And they had all the streaming service subscriptions. And they could afford to have children without risking bankruptcy. So let's be honest. That's not all of us here. I recognize that. But that's most of us. Most of us have a drawer in the front room or a jar that you could probably pour out and get, you know, a decent amount of money out of just from the change that you've accumulated over time. Most of us can go out for lunch once in a while. We have discretionary income. We can decide how many presents we're going to buy for Christmas. That's rich in the scope of the world, as our friends from Columbia know. (laughs) No one in Canada is desperately, desperately poor globally. And very few people here that are listening to the sound of my voice are desperately poor even in a local context. We're wealthy. We're the people of the church that James is talking to. We are who James is writing to. Now to the text here, the the plans that these middle-class merchants are making don't seem ungodly. They're making normal business plans. We see here that they have a destination in mind. 
that they uh, have some sort of long-term plan. It's at least a, a year. Uh, we're going to spend a year there and trade and make a profit, and, and they're expecting some benefit of their planning. And we all do that. Everybody makes plans. In fact, most of us have to make plans. CEOs of companies have to have plans for their shareholders to know how the business will succeed. The employees of the company want their executives to have good plans because they want the security of their employment in the company. The future paycheck depends on those plans. Small businesses need a plan in order to get a loan from a bank, and depositors at the bank want the bank to get plans from the people they loan to so that they don't lose our money. We want plans. Our school system needs education plans to be accredited and to produce qualified graduates, which we want them to have plans for that, because when those graduates are either operating on our kidney or our brakes, we hope that they are qualified. Planning itself isn't bad. Nehemiah made very specific plans for the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. God gave Moses a plan for releasing Israel from the slavery of Egypt. Joshua had plans for occupying the promised land. So what is the problem that James perceives in Christian planning here? These plans to go to a city and make a profit are not ungodly plans. They are exactly the kinds of plans that would be made by any Jew or any Roman or any pagan or any Christian. And that's the problem. That's the problem James sees. These plans are exactly the same kind of plans that anybody would make. They're the same as everyone else. There's nothing different about the Christian plans. So having supposedly come to understand the supremacy of God and the sovereignty of God and a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and these people being transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, set free from the bondage of sin and death, and given the great commission of bringing the news of salvation to the world, James detects that there is absolutely nothing different about the plans that these people are making. How did you encounter the gospel and the living salvation and person of Jesus Christ and it not change how you plan? Is James's simple observation. Something has to be different. These people may worship in incredible ways on Sunday with their hearts and minds aligned vertically to God and to Jesus, but on Monday morning, their brain and their hearts flip a switch right back to worldly and horizontal things, and the vertical is ignored. And their planning and the methods of their profits and the use of the proceeds are devoid of the influence of God. In verse 14, James says, In all your planning... For security and prosperity, you've forgotten something. While you're making your plans apart from God, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Now, he's not a biblical author, but the military genius Sun Tzu famously taught, no plan survives contact with the enemy. The boxer Mike Tyson paraphrased Sun Tzu very eloquently. Mike Tyson said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. They're saying the exact same thing. Everyone's got a plan until it comes in contact with reality. Everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face tomorrow. And dipping into the wisdom of Ecclesiastes here, James says, your life is a mist, a vapor. In your planning, Christians, you have forgotten how little you control. 
Mist is both brief and powerless. Mist does not push the wind around. The wind pushes the mist around. A baby can wave its hand and dispense with the mist. The mist does not resist the hand of a child. And our life is like a mist. We do not resist God, nor do we last very long in the greater scheme of things. To the plans of God, we are a vapor. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So then how should we be making plans? If this is what James observes, he has an immediate answer. He says, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So instead of making plans exactly the same way that a pagan would, Christians, of course, must make plans in the knowledge of God's sovereignty and in the knowledge of God's will. That's at least the starting point. Christians should have a plan for life and success. They should have a plan. But it follows after and it follows and falls within the context of God's will. Christians will still say, we will live and we will do this or that, but they only say it if God wills it. A plan is still proper, but it's a plan in light of God's will. So this is not a call to live in pure spontaneity, to make no effort at living securely or have no profit from your actions, right? James is not saying, you know, don't make any plans. Don't say we will do this or that. He's not saying just be foolish or be foolhardy and have no plans. Paul actually says in 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So James and Paul are in agreement here. Do make plans and do plan to prosper and make sure you're taking care of your family. God intends you to take care of your family. He intends you to support your relatives and the church family for that matter. And if you are so foolish as to not make any plans or just say, well, you know, God's going to do whatever he's going to do with my life so I don't have to think about tomorrow, then Paul and James would say, well, that's not what Scripture says. You do need to provide and you do need to have a plan. It's a terrible distortion of the understanding of the sovereignty of God to act foolishly or with a sense of fatalism because nothing will do will matter anyway. In fact, the sovereignty of God says just the opposite. Not that nothing we do will matter, but everything you do matters eternally. So therefore, our plans and actions must transcend the horizontal and reach heaven. That's why James says, don't plan like a pagan. Because, in fact, everything you do as a Christian is significant. You should make plans. You should make good plans that lead to success and good outcomes. But you should not make them apart from God's will. When Jesus intersects our lives and his spirit comes to dwell within us, every sphere and every aspect of our life changes. As Christians, we don't have God in a box over here on Sunday or in these parts of our life. Well, he deals with, you know, I understand that God is part of my you know, parenting and part of my relationships. And, you know, he's important, he's important to those emotional things, but God doesn't affect my business. I mean, it's just business. It's not personal. It's just business. No, God intersects every part of our life and transforms every sphere of our life, including our planning and our prosperity. Nothing in the Christian life remains unchanged. 
As James has gone through this letter, he says, you know, you can't leave your tongue unchanged, your words unchanged, your mind unchanged, your heart unchanged, your relationship unchanged. You can't even leave your planning and your career is unchanged. Because the reality of who God is and what Christ has done for you transforms everything in the Christian life. And this is exactly how the Apostle Paul lived. In Acts 18.21, he tells the church of Antioch, I will return to you if God wills it. Rome, Paul really wanted to get to Rome. And he prays that it will be God's will that he should eventually reach Rome in chapter 1, verse 10. In 1 Corinthians 4.19, he says, I will come to you soon if it is God's will. Philippians 2.19 and 24, he says the same thing. In all of his plans, Paul submitted to the will of God. And in fact, when he resisted the will of God, determined to go his own way, actually it didn't go very well for him. He really wanted to get to Jerusalem, and even though he was warned not to go to Jerusalem, he went to Jerusalem. Anyway, it went badly for him. (laughs) And then he did actually end up in Rome where God wanted him, but just he was in prison. That wasn't the way he was hoping to get there. But the fact is that God alone controls whether we live. He alone controls whether we're able to do this or to do that or to do what we have planned. And James here is not just expecting to merely add a God willing at the end of every plan. You know, I often joke with my mother when she says, I'll see you at Christmas or I'll see you whatever. And I'll say, well, you know, good Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Um, You know, assuming that everything goes well, we'll be there. But it's not just simply adding a frivolous God willing at the end of every plan, but rather it is to plan with God. Do you know it is possible as Christians that we can actually sit down with God and make our plans together so that we are in the will of God. Romans 2.12 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You can know the will of God if you allow the gospel and and the scripture and the spirit of Jesus and Christian fellowship to transform your mind. And as your mind is transformed as a disciple, you discern the will of God. And knowing the will of God, you can make plans alongside the will of God. You'll be way smarter than I was in the 80s, right? Just wondering what, I don't know, I'll just pick three schools. I'll figure out which one I get in. Oh, it was all three. Okay, I'll just pick one. Oh, this is what I'm going to do. Nope, you're not even going to practice one day in that career, Paul. You're going to do something totally different. Oh, I'm a tech guy. I'm a nerd. I'm going to be an internet guy. Nope, actually, you're going to be a pastor. Okay, everybody was confused and surprised by that one, right? And I know a lot of you still are. (laughs) But you could... If I had wised up a little sooner, I could have prayed and known the will of God for my life. Now, God planned all my steps anyway. But I think I could have been a lot better off if I had started knowing the will of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 to 10, some of my favorite verses. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man has imagined... What God has prepared for those who love him. That's the Old Testament. Nobody has seen what God has prepared. Nobody knows the will of God and what is in the secret heart of God himself. Wait a minute, verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Isn't that amazing? 
Paul says in the Old Testament, this is what the scripture says. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for us. Those things God has revealed. The secret heart of God is available to us through the Holy Spirit. So this is not just God willing this will happen. This is seeking the will of God with our transformed minds and with the Spirit. For Christians, our planning and our methods and the potential prosperity of the success of those plans is always brought before the will of God. We search the mind of God by the Spirit. We allow our own minds to be transformed by God so that we know his will. And then as God wills becomes a prayerful belief that God does will, he has a plan for our life, and God does reveal his will. It's not simply a nervous hope that God won't interfere with my plans. It is a prayerful beseeching that God's will will supernaturally be my plans. And my plans will conform to the will of God. When we make our career choices, when we make our life choices, when we think about how we do business and who we're doing business with, do we pray this way as Christians? That it be God's will, that our will would ultimately be humbly submitted to God? That sort of humble God-involved hold loosely to your plans kind of planning is not what James is seeing these Christians doing. It isn't what he sees. In verse 16, he says, that is not the right thing. In verse 16, he says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all boasting is evil. See, the opposite of that humble submitting of everything to God is holding tightly to your plans. And deciding you know what's best. And he says if you do it as it is, the way you're doing it now is you are boasting in your arrogance. By holding tightly to your plans, by making plans apart from God, you're placing your own wisdom ahead of God's. You're saying, where's the arrogance in this? That's what it is. You're saying, I'm smarter than you, God. My plans are better. I made my plans without you, and I like my plans. Oh, you're starting to interfere with them? Too bad. I'm pulling them back. You make plans apart from God, or you hold tightly to your plans when God is actually changing them? That is the epitome of arrogance, because you're saying, God, I know better. I don't want to plan with you, and I don't want you changing my plans. But James would say, you should be planning with God, and you should be holding very loosely to any plans. If God wills, I'll do this. If God wills it, I'll be a landscape architecture, architect. If God wills it, I'll be a tech nerd. If God wills it, I'll be a pastor. I hold loosely to these things because I don't know when my plans are in his will or not when I don't seek it. So don't make plans apart from God. Don't hold tightly to your plans. The arrogance that James detects is Christians acting in the belief that they know better than God and they know better what the outcomes of their prosperity should be. Verse 17, he says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. As he has in other lessons now, James narrows the focus of his teaching from the general condition of the church or the general condition that he sees in a group of Christians to each individual heart to a specific Christian, a specific person. He says, God has a will for you, and to resist God's will for you is sinful for you. God's will may not be the same for every other Christian around you. Other people are accountable to God's will for them, 
And they may not be doing the exact thing they're doing, but if you know what is right to do and you don't do it, then for you it's a sin. In James's example here in the text, someone might say, well, how come those Christians get to go to Rome and make a lot of money and I don't get to do that? How come their ships make it safely to port and my ships are lost in a storm? Why is God changing my plans and not changing their plans? It's not fair. Have you forgotten? Just thinking that way, you've already forgotten that God is for you and not against you and he's prepared good works for you to do and everything that he allows and does in your life is for your good and his will for your life is better than yours. Don't be concerned with what God's will is for other people. Be only concerned with what God's will is for you. One of the best and most profound examples of this comes from Peter. After denying Jesus three times and after jesus being denied by peter three times at the crucifixion jesus then appears to peter after the resurrection and restores his relationship with peter and in that restoration jesus gives peter his plan for peter he gives peter the instruction to lead the disciples and to lead the church and he says feed my sheep three times you remember the story most of you i'm sure he says feed my sheep feed my sheep feed my sheep And in the midst of that, he also reveals that Peter's life will come to an end much in the same way that Jesus' did if he obeys this command. And at that point, Peter looks at John. And Peter says, but what about him? (laughs) I understand your will for me, but what about John? And Jesus says, if it's my will to keep him alive until my second coming, what is that to you, Peter? That's none of your concern, what my will is for John. You be worried about what my will is for you. You follow me. Paul says it this way in Romans. Oh, not doing that one. He says it this way in Romans. You who are to pass judgment, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. You see, this is what James is getting at. For you, if you don't do the will of God, for you it's a sin. Other people have different wills that they're following. God has wills for other people, and they may not look exactly the same as yours. And we don't judge another man's servant. We're all servants of God. We don't judge God's other servants. He's got instructions for us. We follow those. So don't worry about the will of others. So as Christians, we are to plan well. And that means we're to plan primarily with God's sovereignty and God's will in mind, but also with a different view to the use of our prosperity, not for ourselves, but for kingdom purposes. James really stresses what the use of our prosperity indicates in the start of chapter 5. The beginning of chapter 5, which I know you're going to read ahead and read, and it's going to cause you great distress because James is mainly talking to unbelievers there, but he's talking a lot about how they're using the proceeds of their planning improperly. And I'm going to cover that later. But instead, let's see how this teaching of James's continues to be expressed in the early church by other apostles. We can see a sort of culmination of the summary of this topic of wealthy Christians in one of Paul's final letters written to Timothy. And don't worry, I'm on my last page. I'm on time. <laughs> Here's Paul's summary. This was written... Well, I'll read it first. As for the rich in this present age... 
As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Or I like the NIV translation, take hold of the life that is truly life. So this letter from the Apostle Paul is written decades after James's letter to the early church. And, and once again, we see that decades later, in the church, there's still expected to be some wealthy, prosperous people. Paul expects, as he's tutoring or mentoring this young pastor, Timothy, he's saying, this is how you address the rich in your church in the present age, the people who are wealthy right now. And the instructions remain the same. Don't be arrogant. Don't be boastful. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches that rust or are eaten. All your hope rests on God. So the first instruction is familiar. Don't make an idol of money. Don't be arrogant. Whether you're rich or poor, money is not where your hearts are to turn. Paul says, instead of hoping in wealth, do good, be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. This is how we are to use our successful planning and our prosperity, to care for ourselves, to care for our family, to care for the church, to extend our care outward into the world, to be generous in good works. If God's plan for you is for your plans to succeed and for you to be successful and for you to be prosperous, and God has that plan for many people, and the level of our prosperity will range, but it will always be to make us content and satisfied. And if anything is prosperous beyond that, Paul says that the rich in this present age are to do good. That we need to use this to lay hold of the life that is truly life. Christians have to approach our planning differently than those around us, and we have to approach our use of prosperity different than those around us. If a wealthy Christian holds loosely to their plans in prosperity, if a wealthy Christian uses their prosperity for good and does not have their heart captured by it, but instead is generous with it, Then Paul says here, they're storing up treasures for the future, for the kingdom to come, where there is life that is truly life. Now, if these commands come to us completely on their own, without the supernatural power and hope of the gospel, then we would be nothing more than moralism and religion. If we just had these commands and there was no actual transformative power by the Holy Spirit to follow them, then we would be left to our own will and effort to accomplish these things. The good news of the gospel is that it brings more than just ethical command. The good news of the gospel is that the spirit of Christ comes to us and makes us new creations and motivates us with a new power to fulfill this command. So why can Christians plan differently than unbelievers and use their proceeds differently? Where do we find the power to do that? It's because of the reality of God's sovereignty sets us free from worry and distress over our future. Because God is provider. Jehovah Jireh cares for us more than the flowers of the field or the sparrows of the air. Because our satisfaction is in Christ and not in things. Because we know this is not our best life now. Our best life is in 
in the next. Because the Spirit of Christ motivates and animates us to good works prepared in advance for us to do. Because this is our reward, a gift from God. Because all of these truths come bundled and packaged to us with the gospel and with the Spirit of Christ. We as Christians do not have to plan like our neighbors and our co-workers. We don't have to spend money the way the world spends money. We have the power and the motivation and the transforming knowledge of Jesus Christ in order to make it different. If we embrace the whole gospel, all that God is and all that he has done through Jesus Christ, then what James is saying to these Christians is that it results in transformative change in every sphere of our lives, including our planning for the future, including the means by which we gain our prosperity, including the means by which we spend our prosperity. And if those parts of your life have not yet come under the influence of the gospel, or if at some point during your career those parts of your life have drifted away from the influence of the transformation of the spirit of Jesus Christ and from the direct will of God, then those things need to be brought back under the will of God. Not just, you know, good Lord willing and the crick don't rise, but like God. What is your plan for my life? What am I doing with my life right now that serves your kingdom? How would you have me use the success that you have given? And it's been success after success after success. I started as a child. And now I'm this functional member of society with, you know, a job and assets and a career and influence. And, you know, I have family to support and I'm part of this church and I'm part of your mission. God, how? What is, look at all the things you've done in my life. How do I use where you've placed me now? And God, wherever I have held tightly to the things as if they're mine, loosen my grip and let your will be done both with my life and my prosperity so that I might inherit the life that is truly life in your kingdom to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.